You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Greetings, everyone. Coach Jen here, and thanks for tuning in to Horse Tip Daily, episode 1478, brought to you today by Spalding Labs Fly Predators, all-natural way to keep flies down at your farm. Today's tip features a primer on how color genetics work, featuring Dr. Brooks and the Horses in the Morning co-hosts, Glenn and Jamie. Regular listeners to the Horse Tip Daily Show will certainly notice that the sound quality is less than optimal on this one. That's because this recording was made in the dark ages of podcasting, 2011. Thankfully, recording software has come along a bit since then. Enjoy the tip. Dr. Brooks, welcome to the show. All right, let's talk about this. I don't know anything about, well, first of all, when you say genetics, it's pretty much out of my ball game. Uh, but, you know, I don't know anything about color genetics. So first of all, give us an overview of what is color genetics. Well, um, color genetics is a lot of fun for a couple reasons. Uh, the first one is from a scientific standpoint, it's a really great system to study. You know, the earliest geneticists started with the color of flowers or the color of fruit flies. So it's really kind of logical that when we move on to horses, we start to look at color. And the other reason it's a lot of fun is because horse people just love it. You know, it doesn't matter what breed of horse you're looking at. Someone has a favorite color, and someone has started breeding their horses for something that looks new and different. So it gives us a lot of really interesting traits to study. So I guess uh, the most basic place to start is usually the base coat color, because that's sort of what's underneath all the fun spotting patterns that we have now. When we're talking about base coat, we're usually looking at at three different types. You have your basic uh, bay, which we think is what the, the um, original color of the horse would have looked most like, maybe with a dilution or two. And then that can be changed by two different mutations, uh, one that will change that bay to black, and one that will change that bay or black to chestnut. And it's a pretty, pretty issue. You know, we say mutations, it sounds kind of scary, but it's not really scary. You know, we all have mutations. That's what makes us each different from one another. It just happens Some of that, us have uh, more than others of us, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. You know, a little diversity is good, though. A little diversity is really good. Yeah, if you don't have enough, you tend to get uh, problems with recessive diseases and things. So we'll say it's a good thing to be different, Okay, right? good. I'm gonna, I like that because that makes me feel better about myself. That's right. That's right. He's adding a little diversity to the population there. <laughs> so, you know, with, uh, with chestnut, it's interesting because the mutation um, affects a gene that acts kind of like a light switch. And it flips on and off the ability for the pigment cells to make that black pigment. So in copies of this gene that have the chestnut mutation, that switch doesn't work anymore, and the horse can't make black pigment. So regardless of what all the other genes say, all that's left is red, and so we see a nice, pretty red horse. Hmm. Now, okay, so I guess how much, how much, so there's, there's actually one base color, or does that mean there's three base colors? Well, when we say base color, that's really kind of, um, it's a broad adjective. And, you know, I tell you, adjectives are, get us in a lot of trouble when it comes to coat color because every horse person has their own name for something, too. Uh, but in general, we categorize the three 
colors as base colors. But if you really talk from a geneticist standpoint, we think of um, what we sort of call the wild type. And the wild type is what did the horse look like before we started selecting for color. And the simplest, closest approximation we can get would probably be just a bay horse. Okay. And all right, so how do we start branching out from those three then into paints and into grays and and things like that? And oh, by the way, we have a redhead that has some black uh, in his tail. Does that mean it's not really black? He's a bay. Oh. <laughs> He's a bay. He certainly could be bay, but you know, Mother Nature always proves us wrong. So as soon as I say that chestnuts can't make any black pigment, Somewhere there will be some exceptional individual that can manage to make a little bit of black. So oh, that means my horse Blend. is exceptional. I like that. I, that's what, right. What, that's right. I tell you. What <laughs> color would Glenn be? Because Glenn is kind of a bay with a gray beard. So <laughs> what does that mean? You're like a dappled horse. You're a dappled gray. <laughs> There you go. Well, you know, gray, the mutation for gray in horses works a little bit similar to the way gray hair works in, in people. Gray is a pretty popular mutation, except for that now we know that it has some association with melanoma in horses. Of course, when I say melanoma, a lot of people kind of panic because you think of melanoma in people, which is really dangerous cancers, usually caused by overexposure to the sun, and it tends to spread very rapidly and be a very nasty disease. In the horses, it's a little different. You do have this overgrowth of pigment cells, so it's called a melanoma. But um, it tends to be more benign in nature and usually causes problems because it likes to be a, a big mass that's in really inopportune areas on the horse. But the mechanism that causes gray in the horse, it's a, it's a single mutation in one gene. It has a dominant effect, so that means just one copy of the gene is enough to see that effect on any base coat color. And the gene controls cell cycle. So there's a bunch of cells in the hair follicle that produce pigment. And when this gene has a mutation, they go into overdrive. And they start turning over, over, and over, and over again until eventually they're completely exhausted. And once they're exhausted, those pigment cells die off, and you're left with a hair that turns white. So it's kind of like what happens in people, because now we, we're living longer and longer as we have improved diets and and uh, better health care, and now we've started to outlive our pigment cells. <laughs> so now our pigment cells are getting kind of tired, and they're running out in our own hair follicles, and there you go, we turn gray as well. So shouldn't gray horses get tired quicker then of all that work their hair is doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, just their hair. Just their hair, you know. The rest oh, of them, okay. they, they okay. do all right. I know, I get tired quick, and I have a lot of gray hair. Yeah, so, you know, it, it happens to all of us eventually, I think. <laughs> how, how much through breeding, then, can you control of the color? You can control a lot, particularly these days. You know, we've gotten pretty lucky, and we've really discovered the genetic basis for a lot of, of colors, particularly the spotting patterns. You know, you mentioned paint horse. And in the paint or pinto horse, we now know uh, the mutations for Tobiano, for lethal white overo, and for some of the Sabino type patterns. And for each of those, we've been able to develop a genetic test. Now, because of the way genes interact, sometimes the way a horse looks won't predict exactly what he's going to transmit to his offspring. And if you're a breeder, you know, you say, well, he's pretty, but really you want to know what the foals are going to look like. So now that we've developed these tests, 
that just ena they just enable us to look at the DNA and read what the DNA says and determine what that horse is going to transmit to his offspring. We can look at the probabilities and predict what his babies are going to look like, and that makes a big difference in the bottom line of breeders when they're choosing who to mate to whom because they can do a much better job of predicting uh, how they're going to get the patterns that really make their horses sell. Yeah, I always feel bad. I always feel, Glenn, I always feel bad for people when they say, oh, um, he's a breeding stock paint gelding. <laughs> that, that just means that you messed up. Uh, and the color did not come out breeding stock paint. Maze, basically, uh, you're a big disappointment horse because you're not flashy. <laughs> Well, they, they, maybe they missed on one gene there. They missed the color gene, but you know, you never know. He's probably got some other genes that make him make him a pretty good individual. So we won't we won't discount him just for just for one one miss. Great, but <laughs> would you want to breed a breeding stock paint to another solid colored horse, or would you get a paint? Or would it be possible, or would that just kind of take the line of color out of it? Well, you know, sometimes there are novel mutations that pop up. Every now and then something new and random happens. So there is that sort of that, that chance that he would uh, gain a mutation in his offspring and then from then on you would have uh, color. But what you can do is by using these DNA tests, you can find another horse who has two copies of those color genes. He's homozygous. Then if you breed your breeding stock paint to your homozygous horse, all of the resulting offspring are going to have those spotting patterns. They'll get something to parent. But is, is this, yeah, I was just going to say, is it is it the stallion or the mare? Is there more control in one or the other as far as color is concerned, or or what? <laughs> oh no! When it comes to genetics, we really have a quality of the sexes at the at the most basic level. You get half your genes from your mom, and you get half your genes from your dad. So damn, I really uh, wanted to have an genes, advantage there. <laughs> no, sorry, Glenn, you're out of luck. Um, <laughs> you know, the genes interact with one another a little differently, uh, depending on what the mutation is. In some cases, the effect of one can cover up the effect of another. But you still have that same written set of directions that came half from mom and half from dad. Hmm. I didn't know that. So if you're going for... Does it take generations? Uh, so this mutation, okay, does it take generations to, to really get it far out there? In other words, you want a, you want a leopard-spotted horse. Does it really take generations to do that, or is that something that can happen in one generation if you find the right two horses with the right genes? Or, you know, and, and through, the, through the DNA, can you really predict that, or is, is there still dumb luck involved? <laughs> Well, when you're talking about random mutations, it's still dumb luck. And when you think about how lucky we've been, it's really surprising because there's a lot of genes that if you get a mutation in there, you're going to cause some serious health problems. And that's how we get genetic disorders and inherited diseases. So we get really lucky when we get a mutation that causes a nifty spotting pattern but doesn't necessarily cause disease. And as it turns out, that many of the genes have more than one purpose. A gene might not only control a spotting pattern, but it also is going to play a role somewhere else in the body. And that's how we end up with a problem like uh, lethal white ovaro. That's uh, the result of uh, two parents that have a frame ovaro pattern. They each carry a frame ovaro gene. 
and one gene is okay. You still have another uh, copy from the other parent, and that keeps you going pretty well. But if you happen to get two copies of this gene, it happens that the gene defect causes a problem with the development of the intestines and the gut, and the resulting folds always die. So it causes a valuable pattern in one copy, but in two copies, a very serious disease. So that's another good use for our DNA test, is now we can help to avoid production of, of these folds. But um, of course, we're talking about things that most of the time are caused by one single mutation. So when it's one mutation, it happens once, and poof, there you go. You've got your trait. It takes one generation. As long as you preserve that genetic mutation in the population by selective breeding, it's always going to be there. When you're talking about things like, like performance or racing ability, that frequently takes many generations to really start to perfect because you have to sort of collect the effect of many different genes and, and the effect of those genes uh, when they're changed by the environment. So that can be a much more complex problem to deal with. Okay, so I know you have two, two kids, right? Because you had the, the little boy that had two. So I have uh -huh. a question. So a doctor of genetics has children. Do you know what's going what's <laughs> to happen and exactly what they're going to look like? <laughs> well, not exactly. <laughs> not exactly. But I, I would be lying if I didn't tell you. I thought about the, uh, the hair color genes there just a little bit <laughs> to see what we thought was, would come along. <laughs> I thought I, you know, maybe you subject. I thought maybe before you even got married, when, when he proposed, you subjected him to a huge amount of DNA testing. And then you said, he, he got down on his knee and he said, he said, Samantha, will you marry me? And you said, well, can we do the DNA testing first? And, you know, after about three weeks, I'll let you know. You didn't do that to well, the poor guy? Uh, I, I didn't. I tell you, he comes from pretty good stock, so uh, I, I rested pretty comfortably in that, to be sure. But, um, you know, and, and the thing is, we, we added a lot of diversity there. We knew we weren't related, so that's a good start. <laughs> Marry outside of the family, and, and you're on the right path. <laughs> well, your sights were low. <laughs> you well, we're not family. somewhere. <laughs> After that, it's all training and environment, right? <laughs> I like your attitude, Samantha. <laughs> I'm sorry, oh, I'm falling off my ball here. Uh, oh well, yeah. Well, uh, so I so how does did you grow up wanting to be a doctor of genetics? Oh, no, not at all, not at all. Like like all good Kentucky girls, I, I wanted to be a professional horsewoman, of course. Um, but you know, it, it's pretty. It's, it's a tough, tough uh, industry to to make your way in. And um, I just, I happen to be good at science. You know, I, I went to school, and uh, you know, when you you think about a career, the the next place you go is usually uh, to be a veterinarian. So then I thought, well, I'll be a veterinarian. And um, while I was studying, I just happened to be to be really good at science, and I kept learning about these genes. And you know, I was like. Seemed like virtually every every problem we looked at from a health aspect could have a genetic component to it. I said, "Hey, you know, this is where stuff is really happening. If we learn how to deal with these these genes, we can we can really solve a lot of problems." So um, I, I literally was was looking at vet schools, and I started a, a research 
program, we had to do a senior research project and just happened to be in the perfect place in the world. I studied at the Gluck Equine Research Center where we happened to have one of the, you know, half dozen or so equine geneticists. Uh, Dr. Ernie Bailey was there and uh, got really fortunate that I got a great introduction to equine genetics and all of a sudden it just clicked. It was like, hey, you know, I get to combine my, my passion for horses with, uh, with these genes and the science I seem to be, to be able to, to do. So um, it was really kind of well, fortuitous because it's not a common career, I'll tell you that. <laughs> so Dr. Samantha Brooks, where can people find out more about, about uh, color genetics in horses? Absolutely. Well, I tell you, there's a lot of really good books out there. Uh, Dr. Phil Sponenberg has written a book that's really fantastic as far as learning about color. And, of course, you can come to my website. We have a little bit about color and a lot about some of the health research that we're doing as well. And if you just Google Brooks Equine Genetics Lab, we're the first one that pops up. Especially with performance horses, flies can really be a nuisance. Fly predators are a great investment of all the different poisons and insecticides and different things you could use. I don't know of anything that is more economical and more effective than spalding fly predators. Well, there you have it. Horse Radio Network has thousands of engaging podcasts for horse people, and you can have them sent right to your phone. Just subscribe via your favorite podcast player. This is Coach Jen, and I will be back again soon with another tip. Until then, go ride your horse. The Horse Radio Network and the Horse Radio Network hosts are not responsible for statements made by guests on the Horse Tip Daily. Please use your own judgment when listening to the tips on this show. <laughs>